honor and glory that's due your name. I thank you for the gathering of the saints together. What a blessing that is. And as we come to worship you, Lord, I pray that you would cleanse our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive your word, every bit of it, Lord. I pray that now we would present ourselves to you as holy living sacrifices and that you, Lord, would be our true God, Lord and Savior, the ruler of our life. We submit to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Before you sit down, can you say hello to a couple people, please? Okay. You may be seated. All right. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats for you to grab and uh, turn to the book of Luke chapter 5. And while you're turning there, we do have a, a few announcements. Our baptism is coming up really, really soon, uh, June 4th, and that's going to be after service. It's at Lake Grapevine. And we have a special spot that we've been going to the past couple years. And we'll get you all the information, the map, and all that for that. Um, but it's going to be from 1.30 to 5. And there's going to be food there. And that's where your participation now comes in. Because if you think you're going to go, there's a sign-up list. And the sign-up list is just to give us an idea of how much food we should get. So if you think you're going to go, um, if you're like 51% at least, then at least uh, sign up and put your name down. And then we also have uh, an area, if you're planning on getting baptized, uh, let us know that too. But um, we're going to show you a little video just to give you an idea of what our last baptism was like. Um, and sometimes people are a little nervous and uh, they don't, you know, they're, they don't know what baptism is. There's different ways to do it. Some people have the baptismal um, at their church. Some people have um, sort of a trough. Um, some people do it in pools, lakes, whatever. The main thing, we're going to talk about this in, right after the video a little bit more. The main thing is it's immersion and not sprinkle. But we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, if we can hit the video there really quick, it's about three minutes, so get your popcorn and relax <laughs> and check it out. So this is last year's baptism. So there it is. And uh, yeah, it made me a little emotional. Uh, before we get into our particular scriptures today, I, I wanted to talk about baptism in particular, just for those who are considering it and thinking about it, and just for the church as a whole, just to really get an idea and, and know what baptism is about and if you should be baptized and things like that. So I want to do kind of the who, what, why, how type of thing. So first of all, in regards to baptism, the who, the who. So who gets baptized? So simply put, Anybody who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. And in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the disciples were told to go into 
all the nations and baptize them, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey the commandments. So it is disciples. Another word for that is followers of Christ. Another word for that is someone who's been born again. Another word for that is someone who's truly a Christian, who is saved. All those things are all the same thing. So any individual who is truly, sincerely, authentically from their heart put their faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting Him for their salvation. So that's the most important thing. So the, the next thing is, so what, what really is baptism? And it's really, in a way to look at it, it's a, an outward expression or an outward testimony of an inward reality. So when we do a baptism, and the way we do a baptism is symbolic of what happens to a person when they become a believer in Jesus Christ. And so uh, I just want to read a little something from the book of Romans in regards to that. In Romans 6.4, it says this, Therefore, we were buried with Him... Christ through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in the newness of life and so that's a good description of spiritually what happens when someone is a saved person or born again and the baptism symbolizes that. So the water, as one goes down into the water, it's symbolic that they are dying to themselves. They are dying to life. They are being uh, crucified with Christ. So it's like going into a coffin. And we have a policy here at church that there's a second part to the baptism. We don't just leave them underneath. Because as believers, we don't just stay dead. So we actually bring you out. So that's good. You saw that. So there's evidence. We bring you out because we don't just die. We die to our old self. And then as we come up, we come alive our new self in Jesus Christ. And that's what we are from that point on to walk in the newness of life. Walk as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. So that's actually what's happening. It's uh, one of the two ordinances that the Christian church has, one being communion and two being baptism. So it, it's not really something that is an optional thing. It's something that uh, every believer is commanded to do. Now, it, it's important to note that a person gets baptized because they're saved not to get saved. So you don't get saved just because we do that outward symbolism and that outward testimony of you dying to yourself and rising again in Christ. So, so that doesn't save you. You do it because you're saved. So, and, and as you're doing that, again, it's a testimony to what Christ has done in your life. So the reason then, the why, the reason we do that one is simply for obedience. 
So we do that because we're, as new creation in Christ, He's now our authority. He's our boss. He's uh, the one who is the controller of our life. And so our submission to Him then dictates to us that we would be baptized. So the, the simplest way to think about that is we're commanded to do that. The second thing and is then it's a testimony. So it's a testimony. It's a public testimony to everybody who is seeing it. And just like those who got baptized last year, they're still testifying today to you of their public profession in Jesus Christ. So that's why we do it. And then the how we do it is we do it with immersion. And that's important because there is a other theologies to where they do infant baptisms and they sprinkle the infant with water, thus inferring that they're conveying salvation to that infant when they're sprinkled with the water. So we don't do that because we don't believe in, uh, in infant baptism salvation. We believe everybody at some point on their own has to decide whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. And so the immersion, that's what the actual word baptism means. It means to be immersed. And we can see why that's important because it's symbolic of the death and resurrection of the believer who dies to himself and rises again uh, from the dead. So that's why we immerse and that's why we do it in that particular way. Um, So the important thing is to know that baptism doesn't save, but we do it because we're saved. So as we sort of just put all those little pieces of the puzzle together, here's a a couple of frequently asked questions. Um, One is, uh, can my little Johnny get baptized? Well, how old's little Johnny? He's three. Well, um, can little Johnny... By the way, that's a fictional person, little Johnny. (laughs) But can can little Johnny on his own... Has he made the decision understanding uh, who Christ is, what he has done, and, and all those things on his own? And the answer is probably not. So we'd prefer to wait till someone is of the age where they themselves will come to their parents or uh, someone at church and say, I want to be baptized. But then the next question is, why? How come? And then you want to hear them say so we don't have a particular age number it's more about if they are truly sincerely wanting to be baptized on their own because they have given their life to jesus christ and that so that's the age and we'll we'll actually ask them when we're in the water there we'll ask them why they're here and why do they want to do this so um so it's important that it's on their own it's from their heart Um, sometimes people come to us as adults, and they say, well, I got baptized at a camp when I was a teenager, or I got baptized um, when I was younger than that, and I never walked with the Lord at all my whole life. Should I get baptized again? Is that, that's kind of an interesting question, and really the, the question is predicated on when you got baptized before, and what, remember what baptism is saying is, I'm dying to my life, and now I'm living for Christ. So if you never did that, and maybe you just went through the ceremony and went through the, the procedure thinking in some way that actually 
made you more right with God, but in your heart you really didn't intend to walk with God and you never did, then that might be a case where, well, maybe as a, a person now who has decided of your own will to follow Jesus and you're saying, you know what, I surrender my life to Jesus, I'm dead to my old life and I don't want to do that anymore, then maybe that would be, yeah, maybe you should get baptized in that case. So all those are um, instances are a little different in regards to that. So uh, the age number is not really a number, it's the sincerity of the understanding of what they're doing and if it's coming from not the parents and not pressure but their own heart because they, they really in their heart want to follow Jesus. Well, in that case, uh, no matter how young they are, who are we to say, no, you can't, you can't do that. But it, you want to just have a little caution because you don't want to give someone a, a, a false understanding of, oh, I'm baptized, so I'm good now. And, and they think that the baptism actually saved them. So, so that's something that's uh, asked a lot. And some people say, well, I was uh, another question that people have is, uh, my parents sprinkled me as an infant. Should I get baptized? In that case, if you're, if yeah, you should, because that, there, that's not in the Bible. It's completely meaningless. There's nothing in the Bible in, in regards to infant baptism. And so you had nothing to do with that either. If you're an infant, you had zero to do with that. So um, if that happened and now you're at a place in your life where you, from your heart, want to do it because you're born again, then I would say, yeah, that would be an instance where you want to do that. Uh, another thing that happens is sometimes people say, well, I've, I've been saved for a long time and not, I've never gotten baptized and I feel a little like weird or embarrassed because I'm old now and never did it. And we have people like that every year and I would say get baptized because there's no better time to obey the Lord than right now. So in that case, I'd say, yeah, let's do it. Um, don't um, let embarrassment or something, your lack of doing it in the past, prevent you from doing it moving forward. Um, so I know there's more questions, and you know, feel free to email me or come up and talk to me and ask me if you have any more questions about that. But um, a couple little tidbits about uh, baptism that's important to know, just practical tips. Uh, it's helpful to bring a towel this time of year it might be a little cold um, last couple times uh, it was actually pretty good it's been heating up so uh, I would anticipate it being like kind of like if you're from California which I know a lot of you are it's like going to the beach in maybe July so you first get in and it bites you but once you're in you're good so it's kind of like that so I uh, another thing is uh, not mandatory, but it's helpful to, if you have water shoes. Um, not mandatory, but just a, a helpful little tip. Uh, another thing is when you get dunked and come back up, your clothing, if you have clothing, tends to get see-through. So I would just encourage you, if that's uh, an issue, to make sure that you're wearing a darker color shirt if you're a female, a lot of females have like a bathing suit and then a shirt over that when they get baptized. And so um, good rule of thumb is modesty. So you want people to remember you for your baptism, not for <laughs> something else. Um, and yeah, and then, um, yeah, if just, uh, you don't, have, but it's usually pretty hot. You don't need to, but if you bring a change of clothes, sometimes that's helpful in 
in um, just changing after. So anyway, that's my baptism thing. Uh, next week, the plan is to show you another video from our baptism two years ago. And what I said this morning, I'm going to write it up and put it into a, a little handout that we're going to hand out uh, at the door next week. And um, if you are thinking about getting baptized, there's a sign up for that. And uh, if you're not going to get baptized if you've already been baptized this is a huge event for our church to support those who are getting baptized so this is uh, i've said it before this is like our super bowl so this is what it's all about this is the great commission this is glorifying it is the thing the reason we are here to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit and teach them to obey the commandments and that's the only reason we exist as a church. So now I want to focus on the second part of the Great Commission, and that's teaching them to obey the commandments of the Lord. And we're going to do that as we look into the Scriptures this morning. In the book of Luke, chapter 5, and we're going to cover the section of Scriptures from verses 17 through 25, and we are going to read those together. Luke 5, 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then, behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus." When he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately... He rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and he departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And so as we look at this particular section of Scripture, it brings to mind something that is often said by the skeptic. And it's this. 
Jesus never said he was God. Have you heard that before? So people will, will use that to say Jesus isn't God. And yet we have in this particular account of something that happened in Jesus' ministry, not only was he saying he is God, he was demonstrating it in a way that was undeniable what he was claiming. And so many religions, even the, the popular religions, uh, attest to the fact that Jesus existed. Jesus did good things. The Jews say that he was a teacher. Uh, the Muslims say that he was a prophet. The Mormons say that he became a god. He wasn't uh, always a god. And, and so you have all these different views and understandings of, of Christ, but it's undeniable that Jesus himself, like the scriptures, bear witness to the fact that he is God in the flesh, nothing less than God in the flesh. And so even in the book of Luke so far, we're only in chapter 5, and we've already seen the testimony of angels to the deity of Christ, the testimony of Zacharias, Baptist, his father, um, Elizabeth, his uh, John the Baptist's mother. We've seen the testimony of John the Baptist himself, of Joseph, of Mary, of Anna, of Simeon, of shepherds, of the Holy Spirit when he came upon Jesus, when he was of the Father who proclaimed this is my son um, of the, um, tem- in the temptation of Satan himself, of Jesus' power over demons, over nature, over disease. And all of these things, all just in the book of Luke so far as we've known it. But it's not just the book of Luke. The, the testimony is clear that at least know this. You, you have to know what the Bible says in order to decide correctly if you're going to believe it or not. So you, you have to know that Scripture testifies that Jesus is God. I'll give you an example. Hebrews 1.8 But to the Son, He, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's pretty clear. How about this one? Titus 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That's pretty clear. How about this one? John 20, 28, Thomas answered and said, My Lord, my God... In Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's pretty clear. In John ten thirty, Jesus said, I and am I and my father are one. 
John, in his gospel, introduces Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In, or it says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. He's the creator of all things. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then a little further down in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the last one I'm going to share with you is Colossians 1.16. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. And so there's some scriptures that testify to this very important point that Jesus is God, always was God, was never created, but in fact was the creator of everything, was that one who existed eternally in eternally in eternal past with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in a holy Trinitarian union. So we worship one God in three persons. The second person of that Godhead is Jesus Christ, the one in whom we're looking at today. So now, in this particular section of Scripture that we just read, this may be one of the, the clearest statements from Jesus himself of what he is claiming. So we have to start off just saying this is what the Bible claims Jesus to be. It's, it's not really correct to say, well, I believe in Jesus, just not the Jesus of the Bible. I don't believe that he was eternally God, that he is the creator of all things. But at least know what we're talking about before you decide what to believe. So you have to know that your belief in Christ, if you're truly going to believe in Him, it starts with understanding that He Himself bore witness to the fact that He was God, was always God. And not only that, that all Scripture testifies to that fact as well. So you can't take another position on Christ without being correct. You can't say that Jesus is a good rabbi teacher, but not God. That doesn't make sense, because 
if, if he was lying about who he was, then he wouldn't be a good teacher. You can't say he's just a prophet because Jesus himself declared that he himself is God in the flesh. So if, if you just say he's a prophet, but yet he said that he's God in the flesh and the scriptures testify to that, then you're, you're, you're not coming at it correctly. And that's a way to try to squeeze Jesus into the equation without acknowledging the fact of who he really is. And so all through the Gospels, we see there's an emphasis on the correct identification of who Jesus was. In other words, it's important. We can't have a general Jesus to our own liking that suits our understanding of things. So let's just make that really clear. If you're going to reject or accept Jesus, you have to do it on the basis of the reality of the fact that he is declaring that he is eternally God, the creator of all things, existing in a triune existence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so let's take a look at this particular section of Scripture where he bears witness to that in a very forceful, powerful way. So first off, if you're taking notes, we're really going to have three points that kind of Uh, at least give us a a little way to hang our understanding hat on a a hook of what Jesus was doing. And the one is looking at it from the the standpoint of those who are gathering to him. They had faith in Jesus. Particularly, they were demonstrating that they believed that he had a power that human beings don't have. So that's number one. So, the, so the, the number one, the testimony is, is from others. And their approach to Jesus because they believed he had power outside of the human realm. So notice in verse 17, we're going to look at this a little more closely. Uh, when it says in verse 17, it, it just sort of kind of picks up this narrative when it says now it happened on a certain day. There are three things that are important to, to understand what was behind this certain day. So the background of this as we sort of step into this setting was one, we looked at it last week, he had just cleansed a leper, a one with a disease that was incurable or thought to be incurable at that time, and he miraculously cured this leper, and this was a testimony of his power over sickness and disease, but it was a a picture also as leprosy represented a sickness of our soul that was incurable. And it's interesting because it said that not necessarily that the leper was healed, it said he was cleansed. That gives us a a bigger idea of what was behind this picture of a person with leprosy, this disease, this physical disease. What was behind it was this spiritual condition that needed healing, not necessarily healing, I should say, but cleansing, washing. So that was what just happened preceding this. And then a little bit prior to this even more, that John in John chapter 2, it tells us, that Jesus was in a different area, area of Judea, not Galilee, but Judea in the desert. And then he was in Jerusalem after that where the temple was. And early in his ministry, he overturned 
the money changer's table. So he actually did that twice. He did it later in his ministry and he did it earlier in his ministry. The, the tension that Jesus would be getting from those religious people in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was where all the religious people were. And that's where the religious activities were. That's where people would go to honor and celebrate and commemorate the feasts and all these things. It was there. And so it was, it was there that Jesus really caused an uproar by overturning the money changers table because at that time there was such an emphasis. Religion at that time had uh, degenerated into this profane, money-grabbing, ex, uh, exhorting things from people, taking things from people, and putting it in their own pockets. So religion had really gotten corrupt by that time. So that was going on. And then the third thing, we finished off last week, and we saw after Jesus healed the leper, he went away to a solitary place to pray and to be with the Father. So those three things actually give us a, a more of a background that's pertinent to what we're looking at. So now this is another day with all those in the background, and it says that he is teaching. The book of Mark, chapter 2, and the book of Matthew, chapter 9, have this account of Jesus as well, and they give us a little bit more information. So what Jesus was doing, he was, he was in Capernaum. This is where Jesus would stay. It was a village on the Sea of Galilee where Peter and Andrew lived, and they had a house there. And Jesus would stay there as he would minister around the Sea of Galilee. And, and so as Jesus was there, most likely it was in Peter's house, but we don't know that for sure. And he's in this house, and he's teaching, and this, this house had gotten so crowded, it said there was no more room for anybody in this house. And even near the door, there is no room. So just a complete sardine can in the house, packed out, New York subway, and, they, and Jesus was teaching. So they, they were gathered to hear what Jesus had to say. And mind you, that, that was the main part of his ministry, was teaching. The miracles were to support his teaching, but he didn't come to just do miracles. The miracles were merely to support his teaching and to authenticate the fact that he was truly the Messiah. So as he would teach, then occasionally he would do miracles to demonstrate that his teaching was such was the very word of God. And so as he's teaching in this house, uh, Mark chapter 2 says he was speaking the word of God. He is preaching the word. And then it says there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of the Galilee, of Judea, and Jerusalem. So three different places. So the Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separate or separated. This were a group of about 6,000 religious men at the time of Jesus. The, the ministry of the Pharisees started back with Ezra and the restoration of the temple after the children of Israel came back um, from captivity to the Babylonians. And they became experts in the law and the traditions. Jesus noted about them that they were 
all show but no go. That's my own words. So they're all about the outside obeying of laws in order to be holy and right with God. But inside, they were all about themselves and pride and wanting to look good for the people. And Jesus exposed that. And so these are the group of people sitting by and they're coming from all different areas. And and so he notes that they're coming from Galilee. So that's where they were at the time. And that's where Jesus was doing a lot of miracles. But not only that, they're coming from Judea, which is the desert area where John the Baptist was doing a lot of his ministry. And then Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was a huge concern at this time. So much so that all these religious leaders came from all these different areas to, it says that they were sitting by. And that's a good word and a good way to understand they're looking for him to make a mistake. And they were waiting just for him to do one wrong thing, one false statement, one bad move. And as they were watching, they were waiting because they wanted to bring the hammer down on him, literally. And that's what people that struggle with legalism do. They look to criticize. They look to find fault. Unable to see any good that may be happening, but looking for someone to cross the line so they could smash him so they can rebuke them, so they can get their self-righteous pride to attack people. The scribes, these were people who were part of the Pharisees. It says they're teachers of the law. Those were law experts. They were the theologians. And so it's interesting because you have these different groups. You have these people packed in a house. Jesus in the house And it seems like they're hungry to hear what Jesus was saying. They're hungry for the word. And it's interesting because then you also have those present that should have been giving them the word. You have those religious people who were um, given the opportunity and the privilege to feed the sheep, to tend to the sheep, to care for them. And yet those people weren't given the truth of the word of God. And so they're hungry for it, but then those who are supposed to give them the word of God, they're standing by looking to criticize the very ones, the very one who should have done, who was doing what they should have done. Interesting scene, isn't it? And they want to find fault with Jesus. But notice this statement. It's very interesting. As all of this is going on, There's this note by Luke. It says, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So here's this this mention of this word power. That those religious leaders, they had worldly power. They did. They had power. They had power over the people but they didn't have the power of God. And all these people around Jesus, and you just get this picture that they're just pressing in 
on him. There's just a, a desperation there. There's a hunger there. And what Jesus is teaching, he's feeding the spiritual hunger that they have in their hearts, this emptiness, just like someone who hasn't eaten a meal in a week and they finally get a burger in front of them. It's like that. They're just devouring the Word of God. They can't get enough of it. And, and, and with all of this, then there's this, this power that comes along with it. And this power, we're told, is, was, was there to heal them. So we're not really sure who them was. Was it specifically talking about the Pharisees and the teacher of the law or the scribes? Was it, was it mentioning, was Luke mentioning that there was power to heal them? Or was it that he was saying there was power to heal everyone who was there? I believe it was everybody because the, the power was available. And the power, and we've seen through the Gospels, is Jesus was willing to use his power during this time to heal practically everyone. There is a willingness. But when he went to his own hometown, Nazareth, and he began to speak in the temple. The scroll was open, Isaiah 61, and Jesus said it was him that fulfilled that. And they were enraged because they knew him as Joseph's son. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. They tried to throw him over the cliff. And in Mark's account of that, in Mark 6, 5, it says that he could do no mighty work there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And it says Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And so I believe that what we're seeing here is that statement is put because Jesus' power is available to all who will believe. So if you think about it right here in this room, His power is available to anyone to be saved. So you think about what it requires to be saved. You think about the power necessary to be saved. You think about a person can't be saved on their own. They can't do anything on their own to be saved. And yet we sit here in a room where there is power for anybody who would put their faith in Jesus Christ in that minute, they could have their sins forgiven. Is that powerful? But then there are some others who are sitting here who may say, well, I don't believe that. Well, then that power is not going to affect you. That power is not going to save you. That power is not going to change you. It's not going to do anything for you because there's power there, but there's a way to access that power, and it's faith. We're going to talk about that more in a second. So in verse 18... During this scene, it says, Now, then behold, men brought a bed, or bet brought on a bed, a man who is paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. Now, that's pretty heavy. Now, I'm not talking about the guy they're carrying. So, 
there's this passionate move of particular people. And in Mark's account, we find there are four men carrying one man among a group of people. And this group of people, kind of highlighted by four men carrying a paralyzed man, they knew something. And it was the fact that their friend was in a terrible way, a terrible condition. Their friend couldn't walk. Their friend, and and most commentators believe he was in this condition because of sin, sexually transmitted disease. But however you want to look at it, we, we just have to realize they knew this was their, their shot, their opportunity. This was their chance. No doctor can make his legs work. No medicine can make his leg work. No healing waters that stirred could make him walk. But there was Jesus. He was nearby. He had been healing people. They get their friend and they pick him up on this mat, this bed, and they come over to the place where Jesus was. In their heart was probably a mixture of excitement. Jesus is here, he he can fix our friend. But then that was probably mixed with how are we going to get him there? How is this going to work? But I think the dominant theme of, of these men, and I do believe the paralyzed man on the mat was not resistant, but he was probably coaching them a little bit, I think. He was probably, hey, let's go, come on, let's do it, let's get there. We're going to see why I think that in a second. But they just wanted to bring their friend to Jesus. We need friends like that. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends when you're hurting, they're going to bring you to Jesus? If you don't have friends like that, you're going to be in trouble. You need friends that are going to carry you to Jesus. And we all get in places in our life where we need to be carried to Jesus. Where we feel like we can't get up. Where we feel like we can't move. Where we feel like we're stuck. And we need friends to pick us up and take us to Jesus. We need to be people who ourselves bring people to Jesus. We need to be people that bring our lost friends and loved ones, to Jesus. Knowing that's the answer, but sort of you take this in and you realize 
Their desperation was because they knew Jesus was the, the answer. And they knew he was the only answer. So that's the desperation. It's, it's knowing that he's the only answer. And this is our opportunity. And there is no other answer. And he, he's here. And so they're motivated. So in their heart, you know, when we do something, when we go somewhere... There's something in our heart that triggers us to, to do that or ignites a, something in our heart to go in a direction to do something. And here it was the, their faith that they knew that Jesus was the answer, that he could heal them or him. And so in their heart, they're moving, and that's what faith does. Faith is not passive, but faith does something. Faith moves. Faith goes in a direction. So at any given time, all of us are exercising or exhibiting some sort of faith because we're doing something. So the fact that you got up this morning and brought yourself here shows there is something in your heart that did that. Something in your heart that drove you, that moved you to do something about what was in your heart. So that's what faith is. Faith is a belief in our heart that causes us to move and to do something. And here that picture is a faith that is a strong, passionate desire that knows Jesus is the answer and is willing to move towards him and their own faith was such that it was affecting another person's faith. So their faith was driving them to Jesus and because they were being driven to Jesus and this other individual, the paralyzed man, he was being driven by Jesus. So don't ever discount the effect of your own simple faith in God that causes you to move towards the things of God, whatever that may be. So you just being here this morning because something in your heart drove you and you obeyed that and you listened to that, did you know you just being here is sending a message to people? It's sending a message to me. It's sending a message to the people next to you. It's sending a message to people that may be at home, that are still at home, and you came here. So that there's something, there's going to be a conviction or some kind of thing that goes on in their heart because you're moving towards Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.25, I think it is, that we are not to forsake the meeting of one another together as some are in the habit of doing, but even more so as the day approaches. And do you know why? The Bible tells us so we can stir one another up to love and good works. So do you know that your action that has come from your heart, that you actually acted on something in your heart to actually get dressed, take a shower, hopefully, and to get here actually 
is ministering to a lot of people, is actually affecting a lot of people. And that's what we find here. So in verse nine, uh, 19, it says, when they got there, they could not find how they might bring him in. It was too crowded. And so they went home and complained about it. <laughs> well, you probably know the story well enough to know that's not what they did. But here's the thing. Faith, true faith doesn't stop. True faith persists. So they couldn't get in. So they didn't stop. Why? Because they had faith. And that faith kept driving them. A true faith in Jesus Christ does not stop when things get hard, is not deterred when it's not easy. But a true faith keeps going. Why? Because it's faith. And faith, true faith keeps going. And so these men, these four men with the paralyzed man on the mat or bed with the group of people with them, when they got there and they saw that their normal way of going in wasn't going to happen, instead they went to the housetop, it says. So they would have been able to, probably an outside staircase, taking them to the top of a flat roof, which is common in those days. And on those roofs, they would have beams, and in between the beams, they would have twigs and mortar and clay, different things, be pretty solid, but it wouldn't be like concrete. It'd be solid enough for people of that day to hang out there. So that was a common practice to hang out on the roof. It wasn't common to do what they're doing, though. So they went up on the housetop, and they let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. A good way of looking at that, for me at least, is to say they didn't care about anything except for getting to Jesus. They didn't care how awkward that may be. So that'd be kind of awkward. You know, they're all hearing Jesus teach and all of a sudden the roof starts caving in. And then they see a little sunshine going through a little hole, and they, they look up and, hey, is that a person up there? Wait, no, it's two persons, three persons, four persons. Oh, wait, there's a guy coming down the hole to us. So we don't read that that was a common practice in Jesus' time. But you see, a faith that knows that Jesus is the answer will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. That will be the only thing that will matter. And so these men, these four men with the paralyzed man, they lower him down, they lower him down, and, and here he is now right before Jesus. And you wonder if the other people are saying, hey, that's not fair. He, now he's got a front row seat. How did he get in here? But he's there, and notice what it says at the last part of that verse. It says, into the midst before Jesus. That's where we want to be. And I read that, and I think, 
how easy it is to give myself excuses to not be right before Jesus. I was going to spend time in my word this morning, but the baby was crying or my hair was messed up. I couldn't find a good place to do it. I couldn't find my Bible. We can make all kinds of excuses, but true faith will do anything to get to Jesus. And the reason is, is because that faith knows Jesus is the answer. And that faith knows that we need to prioritize being before Him, even if it means going out of our way, being sacrificial, being uncomfortable, doing things that are hard. But when we truly value Christ the way we should, we will not let anything stop us. So this idea of a very superficial, light touch with Jesus, the type of faith that's like you dip your toe in the water a little bit and check it out, that's not a correct understanding of what true faith is. True faith radically prioritizes Jesus above anything else. And we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to get to be right before Jesus. Knowing that He is God, knowing He is the answer, knowing, get this, that there's not anything else. So sometimes as Christians, we think, well... Today it's okay, or I don't need to be right by Him because I can do other things to make myself feel better or get through. And I supplement a relationship with Christ with other things. And I want to tell you, there's nothing else. There's no other answer, and true faith knows this. That's why these men were not deterred and went home and said, well, we'll try someone else. Maybe a witch doctor will come next week or maybe something else. They, they knew he was it. If you know he's it, you will go to him. And our society has set up all of these false gods who replace being with Jesus, him and him alone. I'm here to tell you, there's nothing else. Just Jesus. And He is everything. And these people knew it. And that is a testimony to His deity that they knew that they were willing to do whatever it took to get before Him because they knew He had the power that no one possessed to heal this man of paralysis. So, a lot to think about. And a lot more to cover. But we're out of time. And we're going to finish right here. Because I think this is an appropriate place to finish. I think as we look at these scriptures and, and really try to get ourselves into the sandals and clothing of these men that took this paralyzed man to Jesus. I think that's the perfect picture and an important message in the times that we live in.
to come back to the place where we know and realize we must be before Jesus constantly and not let the distractions of the day, the tyranny of the urgent, the superficial false idols that we put in place of Jesus to make ourselves feel better, that the church needs to prioritize Jesus above all things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And as we do that, it's amazing how everything else falls in order. But if we don't do that, it's amazing how everything else falls apart. So today, as we finish, may our faith be a faith that truly demonstrates by our actions that we know that Jesus is the answer to everything. And you know know what that's going to eventually mean? And I hope you come to this understanding today. It's, It's going to come down to a place where it's not enough just to be around the things of Jesus, but it's time to surrender your whole life to His Lordship. And that's where things change. That's where you demonstrate that you truly believe that He is God. Because if He is God, the way the Bible says, there's no other way to interact with that God except to make Him our everything. And so let's finish with that and let's consider who we are with Jesus. And maybe today is a day where we put everything behind us and only Jesus before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. And Lord, as we finish this service, I just want to pray that you would intervene in a, just an amazing way to bring uh, attention or conviction or uh, motivation, whatever it may be, so that all of us here today, and I, I definitely include myself, that we allow so many things to take your place, and we, we just want to say we're sorry for that, Lord. Please forgive us and help us to have a faith that won't let anything stop us from being with you and putting you first in our life. And I believe, Lord, there are many here today and those who are listening that they are feeling the effects of allowing idols and the things of the world to be important to them in such a way where they crowd you out, Lord. So today, may we take a step of faith towards you and now profess in our heart that you, God, are everything. And we will put you first in everything. So please give us grace. Please give us help. Please give us motivation. Please give us passion, Lord. But let us exercise our faith by moving towards you and living our life before you. So let's all stand. We're going to finish with this last song. And if anybody is here this morning and has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, 
Today's the day. Call on Him when He is near. So the Bible says that we are all sinners, separated from God. But God demonstrated His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That whoever would believe in Him and confess with their mouth and trust in their heart that Jesus is Lord and rose from the dead, that you would be saved. So if you're not saved, I'd encourage you this morning, if you're not sure you're saved, just make it definitive and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I give you my life. That's how you do it. It's not a formula, not all these steps. Just cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of walking like this. I'm tired of feeling like this. And cry out and ask Him to save you. And He will. So as we sing this last song, we're going to have those that are part of our prayer team up front. They would be glad to pray for you. Just encourage you as we sing this last song, just make your way up front and allow our prayer team to pray for you guys. So God bless you. Let's worship the Lord before we leave today.